Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and after we recorded our last podcast, I left Las Vegas for Alaska, where I am now, but it took me long enough to get here. Uh, Well, it took me long enough to leave Las Vegas. Uh, My flight was scheduled at 7.30 p.m. on Sunday. I couldn't get a late checkout at the hotel, so I arrived at the airport a shade after 12 p.m., only to be told I couldn't check my bag for three hours. So I sat in Starbucks, wrote an article, checked my bag, wrote a book chapter, well, mm. a segment of a book chapter, okay. um, prepared to board, and then waited as my flight was delayed and delayed and delayed. And I think I've tried to push it all out of my memory, but I think <laughs> by the time I boarded, I'd spent something like nine and a half, ten hours at mm. the airport. But here I am now, and well, actually, not that your Sunday travel experience was any better, really, was it? Yeah, you know, due to the phrase first world problems, I, I hesitate right. to complain about air travel, but, um, you know, I hesitate for just a moment and then I march forward and complain. Um, it is so bad these days. Uh, you'll recall that, that last year we had flights home from LA canceled at the last second and we were stuck there two extra days without our bags which they chose to send on a different plane to Philly without consulting <laughs> us right. and and we missed both of the school of rock shows that uh, my son had spent the previous three months practicing for um so I'll just preface that my experience last Sunday wasn't anywhere near that bad but I had about four hours of delays getting home including not one but two refuels. Uh, we spent so much time taxiing in Vegas that when they finally gave us clearance for liftoff, we instead had to get out of line and top off our fuel. And then wow. we spent so much time taxiing again that 75% of the way through the flight, they announced we were going to be landing in Indianapolis to gas up <laughs> one more time just to be sure we had enough wow. to get to Philly. So uh, you were at the airport for nine and a half hours. <laughs> I was on the plane for about nine and a half hours for what was supposed to be a five-hour flight. Uh, not not the way I wanted to spend my birthday. Seriously. But but hey, at least neither of us is Matt Ryle, huh? <laughs> oh, you mean in terms of travel. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, no, yes, so, yes, yes. So, yeah, our, our colleague at Showtime, Matt, uh, had it way worse than either of us, I think it's safe to say. Uh, he had, on the way out, to Vegas. He had six separate flights canceled and ended up coming a day late and out of a different city. And then he had enough delays on the way home to land at around 3 a.m. So uh, so Matt wins. Uh, if, if you and I are in some sort of competition for worst <laughs> travel woes, uh, that competition is for second place. Yeah, well, there you go. The, the, the joy of travel. Maybe I'll just stay here in Alaska for a while and continue to record podcasts out of my friend's garage. Maybe well, that's I, the future. As I was saying before we started recording, the acoustics actually sound better there than from your typical Vermont location. So I support this plan. Yeah, yeah. got to do what you got to do. Oh, well. <laughs> um, this week on the podcast, we have plenty of fights to preview, uh, although not as many as we expected due to some, quote, adverse analytical findings in Nevada test that we will talk about. Uh, but we will still look ahead to a full Showtime Championship Boxing triple header from Oxen Hill, Maryland, and a potentially spectacular action fight between Oscar Valdez and Emmanuel Navarrete. Uh, also, we're shaking things up a wee bit with an unscheduled top five countdown. Uh, on the heels of Terence Crawford's sensational win over Errol Spence, Eric and I have decided to both reveal lists of what we think are the all-time top five 
dominant masterpiece performances against elite opponents. Uh, we'll also have most of the usual business, although we're skipping the fight game for this week because we do have the aforementioned dual top five lists. And until last night, I was allegedly on vacation here in Alaska. But there's still <laughs> plenty to sink our teeth into. Uh, and let's start with a look back, actually, at Friday Showbox and a main event that delivered a legit contender for knockout of the year. Yeah, uh, boy oh boy was my pick of Aronson Garcia to defeat Jordan Short Dog White wrong. Uh, in the main event at the Wind Creek Casino in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it took just 1 minute and 57 seconds for White to turn out the lights on Garcia with a single counter left hook, a perfect shot that traveled, I don't know, maybe four inches before landing on the button. Uh, we never did update our pick competition scores after the pay-per-view from Vegas. So let's do that. Now you got a uh, one point to my zero for picking white. So I now lead by the slimmest of margins, 62, 61. That's much closer than white versus Garcia turned out to be. Although, you know, of course one punch, it can happen to anyone. Doesn't mean Garcia is no good, uh, but he is no longer undefeated. He falls to 17 and one while White improves to 15-1 and one with 11 knockouts. There's not a lot of action here to break down, but uh, Kieran, share whatever takeaways you may have, and would you expect that this will indeed be in the mix for KO of the year come awards season? I mean, what can you say? I mean, the only thing you can say for certain about either of those guys based on that fight is that White can throw a beautiful short left hook. I mean, that was a fantastic punch. It's mm. the kind that you dream of landing. Uh, it was short sneaky he stepped into it a little bit it's pretty close to the perfect punch really i'm not sure that we can derive anything else from this it was all over so quickly and, and as you sort of intimated early one punch knockouts can happen they can happen to anybody but um but yeah as for your other question i was already thinking about it as a, as a ko of the year contender the moment we looked at poor garcia just laying there mm. uh, on the canvas stare, staring at the the lights and the ceiling uh yeah that's that might be the leader now, actually. I'm, I'm trying to go through my head and think what else we have. But in terms of nice, clean, no doubt, one punch knockouts, that might be the leader in 2023. Um, unless you can think of something else to rival it at the moment. I, I can't. I know that we've seen some good knockouts this year and I have not been keeping a good running tally. And so nothing is coming right to mind. I, the, the, I don't know that we'll see a better knockout from an aesthetic perspective the question yeah. is just is there going to be something that's at least in the ballpark that's a bigger fight and thus that right. becomes the knockout of the year but yeah this this is going to end up somewhere in the discussion i'm sure yeah but that's all i really i think there is to say about that fight unless you yeah. have a, a series of observations to, i i to do not th i do not this time before. nope this uh <laughs> <laughs> this is one rare case where uh, a fight uh, lasted about two minutes and we actually managed to discuss it in about two minutes and, and can move <laughs> fantastic. on fantastic all right. Uh, the undercard uh, gave us a pair of competitive eight-round distance fights. Um, in the co-main, it doesn't get much more competitive than the draw announced at the end of the 154-pound bout between Paul Kroll and Guido Schramm. 77-75 scorecard for Kroll overruled by two 76-76 cards. Kroll is now 10-0-2 after his second showbox draw. Schramm is 16-1-2. And in the opener, Julian Gonzalez improved to 2-0 on showbox and 11-0-1 overall with a unanimous points win over Johnny Spell, who suffered his first loss and is now 8-1. and one. Uh, Eric, what did you think of the scoring in Kroll Shram? And any other thoughts on any of these four fighters? I, like one judge and like Steve Farhood, had Kroll on top, 77-75. But there, there were enough close rounds that you can't really get too upset about a draw. Uh, Kroll got 
maybe a tiny bit unlucky in that he seemed to do the slightly better work and and a draw i guess was kind of the worst within reason result for him here mm. uh but but still a draw is a perfectly valid outcome but m- what stands out more to me than you know who won the fight or the fact that nobody won the fight is just what a great mesh of styles this one turned out mm. to be. I don't know if Gordon Hall planned that or if he just kind of got lucky, but but this was one of those fights where the two boxers' delivery systems for punching matched up just right. Yeah. Uh, they were often looking to throw at the same time. There weren't a lot of lulls. It wasn't you know one guy punching and the other playing defense and taking turns and any of that stuff. There was just a really good flow to the offense of this fight. And I feel like I say this frequently after good close showbox fights, but I wouldn't mind seeing it again. Uh, maybe, maybe over 10 rounds as a, as a showbox main event, something like that. Um, Julian gifted Gonzalez. Meanwhile, would appear to have the highest upside of these four undercard fighters. He's turned into a prospect to watch in the 130 pound division, just 21 years old. I liked his long right hand a lot. Um, Spell, he was pretty slick. He had solid basic skills. He kept it competitive, but Gonzalez led throughout and, and earned the clear win here. Um, Look, Jordan Short Dog White was clearly the star of this show, uh, the MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember when we used to name an MVP of every Showbox show? Uh, oh, yeah. It <laughs> didn't really last. <laughs> but uh, White was certainly the MVP, the star of this show. But Gonzalez is number two on, on this card for me. He's uh, now beaten a 9-0 and guy and an 8-0 and guy on Showbox. I, I like the trajectory that he's on. Yeah, I thought both fights were interesting in that they both had momentum changes, and um, uh, which made them interesting. I actually did score Kroll Schramm a draw. Okay. Um, and I I saw Gonzalez spell as seventy eight seventy four. I, I thought that Gonzalez was on the verge of an extremely impressive performance early. Uh, spell just very early on just seemed to have trouble figuring out how to get away from that right hand of his that you mentioned. And I remember noting very early on. All he's doing is just kind of lifting up that shoulder and twisting away and he's going to get caught. And, and it looked like he was having some real trouble. But then there was that strange shift sort of around rounds five and six. And mm-hmm. I don't know if if Gonzalez was just resetting a little bit or, or what. It, it might be, you know, that's what these kind of fights are for, though, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, Gonzalez needed to get used to eight rounds. And, you know, maybe it's a case of maybe he needed to learn that no matter how great your plan A looks through four rounds or five rounds, if it's not getting the job done, you know, in terms of getting your guy out of there, maybe it's time to think about a plan B or a plan C. And and maybe that was missing a little bit, but that's okay. Like he said, he's 21. That's what these fights are for. And he'll understand that a little bit more now. And I thought that was a good win. And I echo your sentiments about him being a guy to keep an eye on. Uh, there was one other fight card this weekend worth commenting on. And we'll do something atypical here. Uh, we'll discuss it without the fact that either of us <laughs> watched it. Um, so we'll have some great insight, believe me. Uh, <laughs> on a pay-per-view card that neither of us ordered because our respective levels of interest didn't rise to meet either the cost or the time commitment, uh, Jake Paul bounced back from his first loss as a boxer and improved to 7-1 and one by knocking down MMA fighter Nate Diaz in the fifth round and winning a unanimous decision after 10 rounds. Also on the card, Amanda Serrano dominated, but couldn't stop the very tough Heather Hardy, winning a lopsided unanimous decision. And lightweight prospect Ashton Silva improved to 10-0 with a fourth round body shot knockout of William Silva. Eric, despite not actually watching the fights and only seeing the highlights posted to social media, I think there's some value in us weighing in quickly on where this Jake Paul experiment stands. So what do you think? 
How much do you think interest has diminished now he's lost that O? And where does he go from here? So uh, based on our sample size of two people who didn't get the pay-per-view, uh, <laughs> interest is way down. Um, but uh, seriously, th- there there was something mildly compelling before uh, when he was still undefeated about the opportunity to wonder about the possibilities, to, to wonder you know, if he can stay undefeated a few more fights, might a Canelo-Jake Paul mismatch make business sense the way that Mayweather-McGregor once did, things like that. And then he faced an actual pro boxer in Tommy Fury and came up just a little bit short. And, you know, look, we've said this every time we've discussed Jake Paul, that, that he deserves a lot of credit for how far he's come in a short amount of time and how seriously he takes his boxing career. But his loss to Fury is a reminder that you can't just pick up a new sport in your 20s and become world class at it. It's a clear delineation for Paul. You know, he's good enough to beat everyone he's faced who isn't really a pro boxer and not quite good enough to beat the one lower level pro boxer he took on. So he's back in the correct lane, you know, taking on MMA fighters with recognizable Mm -hmm. names who are varying degrees past their primes and... You know, I guess we'll have to wait for the pay-per-view numbers and the profits to know if that's still working financially following the loss to Fury. Based on social media buzz and whatnot, it seems interest is diminished but not dried up. Um, they, mm. they promoted it hard and it got a fair amount of press, but it's all down a level from where it was a fight or two ago. Um, now, there's talk of a rematch with Diaz in MMA. Um that actually probably makes money. I would imagine MMA mm. fans will order that to watch Jake Paul take his beating, uh, which he yeah. assuredly would take, because just as MMA f- fighters can't cross over into boxing and beat real boxers, Jake Paul will learn that the reverse is true. I mean, look no further than Car- Clarissa Shields, maybe the best female boxer yeah. alive, hasn't lost a boxing match since she was a kid, but she's just one and one in MMA against modest opposition. So, you know, Paul can fight Diaz in MMA and lose and get paid well, or he could try to lure another MMA fighter or celebrity my kids have heard of and I haven't into a boxing match. Um, Either way, the push to see him step up and build towards something as a boxer is over. There's no longer a how far can he take this angle. We know how far he can take it. Now it's just how long can he drag this out? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, first of all, clearly we need to not watch fights more often because that was good. I enjoyed that. Um. (laughs) I I think it is safe to say that our analysis frequently does not benefit from having seen the fights. (laughs) I think think that's fair to say, too. But no, no, I do think that's fair. I I will note that um, uh, Jake Paul is, is now gotten into the time-honored boxing tradition of trotting out the excuses for his loss to Tommy Fury. Mm. I don't know if you saw that. I did and not. No, what do you have to say? Uh, everything from time zones to <laughs> the dust in the air in the desert mm. to all that kind of stuff. Good good classic stuff. That could be a top five <laughs> list, actually. Best excuses <laughs> from, yeah. from beaten fighters. Um, so, you know, maybe he's sort of laying that groundwork. And I'll note that Tommy Fury is supposedly fighting another one of these um, influencers, uh, KSI. Mm. And so maybe he's decided that that's the, the pool he wants to splash around right. in. Um, and, and so maybe he's, you know, setting up the excuses for his fans who've probably never heard of the boxers come out with excuses before um, to try and avenge that loss. But yeah, it, it, apart from the fact that this diminished interest, one figures that if he has returned to that lane, 
there's got to be a diminished pool too, right? There's only so many retired, almost retired MMA fighters with name recognition who you can credibly drag into a boxing ring out there would be my guess. Right. Um, so I, I don't know how far that goes, but he is a smart kid and he's probably already thinking ahead to the next stage, whatever it might be for him. And whether that's being in the ring or focusing more on promoting or yeah, like you said, doing that, trying out, uh, actually fighting in the in the octagon i don't know the, the smart thing to do would be taking on boxes in the in the octagon i guess never actually take on anybody who's good at the sport that you're right. practicing <laughs> right that would make sense <laughs> boy you, you really got me thinking though about these uh all-time uh excuses uh I, I, just just one that has come to mind because i don't know if we'll actually end up doing a, fi- a top five list on it but uh just while you were talking i re- recalled that when Julio Cesar Chavez lost the first fight to Oscar because because uh, his face was busting open, he said afterward that his one of his kids had like accidentally cut him when he was just playing around as daddy and kid or whatever, and he came in with cuts from his from playing with his kids. I remember <laughs> hearing that one. That that could crack the list if we ever do that list. He was always such a gracious loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, things were good when Julio Cesar Chavez was undefeated. Once once the losses started coming, we saw a different side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's uh, start spinning it forward with some fight previews. Uh, first up is a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header on Saturday, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 Pacific, from the theater at MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. A short drive from the hometown of all the many Gary Russells, uh, and those Gary Russells do play prominently into this card. In the main event, for a vacant bantamweight belt, it's the man who beat Gary Antonio Russell last time out, Emmanuel Rodriguez of Puerto Rico, who is 21-2 with 13 knockouts. He takes on Nicaragua's Melvin Lopez, 29-1 with 19 KOs, winner of eight in a row, seven of those by knockout. Rodriguez is 30 as we record this, but will be 31 by fight night. Uh, Lopez is just 25. Lopez is a southpaw, but that's nothing new to Rodriguez, whose last three fights have all been against southpaws. Kieran, break down this matchup a little bit more and tell the people who you're picking. So as you mentioned, Rodriguez is 21-2, and but that's a deceptive record in that he's probably a lot better than that. Um, One of his two losses was to Noya Inouye, who's so good at this point that you almost feel like a loss against him should be expunged from your record. (laughs) Um, And the other was a fight he probably won, actually, against Raymar Gabayo on on Showtime, uh, about that Steve Farhood scored 118-110 in his favor. Um, He's been down three times, but those knockdowns all came in one round against mm-hmm. Inoue. Um, <laughs> his quality of opposition, especially of late, has been excellent. Um, including Lopez, his last eight foes have a combined record of 171 and five. Um, he's a fun fighter to watch. He's happy to come forward and throw punches and attack, but he's also very happy to sit in mid-range and look for counters. He's got very fast hands. He throws short, straight punches. His counter lead right was a highly effective weapon uh, against Russell. Um, he, as you mentioned, he, he's uh, orthodox, um, and Lopez is southpaw. The one issue there is that both of his fights with Russell, who is also a southpaw, ended on headbutts. Yeah. So um, we got to hope that that doesn't happen. Um, Lopez looks perfectly sound fundamentally, but he looks much slower than Rodriguez. He really does. And 
Honestly, I have a bit of a hard time seeing him being especially competitive, to be honest. And that's less of me being down on Lopez, more than I think Rodriguez is actually very good. Um, and in contrast to Rodriguez's recent quality of opposition, five of Lopez's previous six opponents had double-digit losses. I, I just see him struggling to know what to do with Rodriguez, uh, who I see beating him to the punch consistently, racking up the rounds, steadily breaking him down. And I think stopping him in the second half of the contest, just into the second half of the contest, I'm going to go with Rodriguez by TKO in seven. All right. Um, I was not familiar with Melvin Lopez before this fight was signed. I am now somewhat familiar with him. And to be blunt, I don't really think he has much of a chance here. Uh, There's not a ton of footage of him available to watch, but what I did see wasn't terribly impressive. And his quality of opposition isn't all that impressive. And I watched his one loss, a ninth round KO defeat to Jose Velasquez. That was certainly not impressive. Um, Rodriguez, on the other hand, is an elite bantamweight who is now finding his stride. My God, was he good against Gary Antonio Russell. He really was. Yeah, yeah he, he boxed so much more smoothly in that one than I've ever seen him box in other fights. He knocked Russell down. He hurt him a couple of times. Just flat out dominated that fight until it was stopped due to, as you said, a head clash, which with Rodriguez's history and the Southpaw versus Orthodox thing, certainly a concern here. Let's hope a head clash doesn't factor into this fight. Um, but anyway, Rodriguez is an outstanding fighter. As you said, uh, TBRB ranks him number one in the Bantamweight division. Now that in a way has moved up. I agree with that ranking. I think he's the top dog here. Um, I also agree that the lost, quote-unquote loss to Gabayo was a horrendous decision. I thought he deserved to win that fight with room to spare. Now, Rodriguez says he's coming for the knockout against Lopez, and he expects it to come sometime between about the sixth and eighth rounds. Who am I to tell him he's wrong? Uh, You went right in between that with the seventh (laughs) round. I'll mix it up ever so slightly and go Rodriguez KO eight. Um, so we have almost the same pick. And, uh, and, and by the way, he says his aim is to unify against Alex Santiago. If he wins this one, <laughs> those are the top two guys in the TBRB rankings would crown a new lineal champion. I like that fight a lot. I, I hope it does <laughs> happen. If Rodriguez wins this fight, as we're both predicting, he will. All right. Um, so you said the Russells play a big role in this card, and the co-feature actually centers around one of them, uh, the last remaining unbeaten Russell, Gary Antoine, who faces Kent Cruz in a 10-round super lightweight bout. Both men are 16-0, but Cruz has three draws to go along with his 16 wins. Ten of those wins come in by way of knockout, whereas Russell has no losses, no draws, and has in fact never been taken the distance. He has 16 KOs in those 16 fights. Eric, what else can you tell us about Russell and Cruz and make your pick? Will it be 17-0 with 17 KOs for Gary Antoine Russell by Sunday? So first off, this fight was originally supposed to happen in May, but got bumped back three months because Russell suffered a hand injury. Um, our listeners should be fairly familiar with Russell at this point. Uh, he's a southpaw. He's a legit puncher. He scored TKOs his last two fights against veterans Victor Postol and Rancis Barthelemy, albeit with some dispute over both of those stoppages, particularly the Barthelemy one. Mm. Uh, Russell went 3-1 and one in the amateurs against Boots Ennis, which that's almost more impressive than Floyd Mayweather's 50-0. and 0. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, I mean, it certainly tells you. Russell is a top-tier talent. Uh, as for Cruz, this is a huge step up. Uh, he's 30 years old. And he seems to know it's shit or get off the pot time. So yeah. uh, so he's taking this big risk. Interestingly, 
He recently changed trainers. He had been working with Ronnie Shields uh, since 2019, but you know, Cruz is one of the many boxers out there who doesn't make enough money from this sport to do it full time. He has a day job, and that cost him his trainer because he can't go to Houston for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it would take to train with Ronnie. So they, they parted ways and he found a local trainer in St. Louis where he lives. Uh, Jose Ponce is his new trainer. Um, Cruz has decent power, not Russell like power, but he has six first round KOs on his record. He has some pop, though the opposition he's knocked out has been very limited. I mentioned Russell as a southpaw. Cruz's last two fights were both against the same guy, Enrico Gogokia, uh, who is also a southpaw, and uh, both of those fights were eight-round draws. The first one, Cruz won a majority of the rounds but got knocked down twice in the fifth, ended up with a draw. Uh, Gogokia is himself undefeated, so you know those aren't necessarily bad results, but they don't bode well for Cruz against Russell. Uh, Cruz did say he felt Gogokia was a bad style matchup, that they're both counterpunchers. I will say counterpuncher might just be the right style to beat Gary Antoine Russell, but I don't think that Cruz is the counterpuncher to do it. Uh, He fights straight up. He's not hard to find. And, you know, whereas Barthelemy was giving Russell problems for some of the rounds in in their fight, I'm not so sure Cruz has the same savvy to pull that off and give him that kind of trouble. Uh, So, yes, I do believe it will be 17-0 with 17 KOs on Sunday, and I'll predict it takes Russell... Six rounds, and then he hurts Cruz, drops him, and forces the stoppage. Yeah, look, I made fewer notes, but many the same ones. Um, The big one is that it's such a huge step up for Cruz. Um, And even though he has been preparing for Russell for a little while now with that first first attempted matchup having been delayed, I I just don't think he has what it takes here. From what I've seen of him, he isn't terrible. Um, not, but not at all, but he doesn't look like he's got an especially high ceiling. And the thing that really leapt out at me from, from what I saw of his, uh, uh, of his fights is that boy, his offense looks awfully predictable to me, Cruz. Mm-hmm. It's very left, right, left, right. Isn't it? It's just, and then he pulls his jab back low when he throws that right hand. I, I just think someone with the smarts of Russell and the speed of Russell, is going to figure him out, um, and, and, and take him out. So I actually had picked KO6 myself Okay. just to be different. Uh, I was around earlier than you in the first fight. I'll go around earlier than you this time. I'll make it a KO5 for Gary Russell Jr. Okay. Um, in the opener, 10 rounds in the welterweight division, another battle of unbeatens, but two prospects 15 years apart in age. Uh, Trayvon Marshall has a record of 8-0 with seven KOs and is just 22 years old. Gabriel Maestre is 5-0-1 with four KOs. Um, you know, that, at least that's his record officially, according to the judges. Uh, and he's 37, having turned pro late after competing in the Olympics in both 2012 and 16. Uh, Marshall, by the way, is from Maryland and has sparred with Gary Antoine Russell. So again, the Russell family permeates this card. Uh, Kieran, drop any additional knowledge you may have on Marshall or Maestre and make your pick. So you hinted at some controversy in Maestri's record, and if the name doesn't initially ring a bell with folks, this surely will when we describe exactly what happened. Um, At late notice in 2021, he took on Michael Fox, uh, who was oddly a a last-minute replacement for Cody Crowley. It's just a very bizarre Hmm. um, uh, uh, sort of choice to pick pick somebody like Fox to replace Crowley, but Fox appeared to dominate this fight. He he dropped Maestri. He thoroughly outboxed him. 
And yet Maestri won that decision that just it just appeared to be dripping with larceny. It was it felt very, very wrong. Um he then went out and drew with uh, Taras Shakestiuk uh, the next time out. And here's the thing, for a guy with, as you mentioned, a very late start to his pro career, he doesn't seem to be in any hurry to make up for lost time. Um, granted, he turned pro just prior to COVID, but still, he had two fights in 2019, one in 2020, one in 2021, one in 2022. This will be a second in 2023 after scoring a TKO of Devon Alexander. Yes, that Devon Alexander, who is still boxing, right. um, in April. Um, Marshall, you know, while not having the amateur experience of Maestri, arguably already has a better win on his pro resume in the form of surprisingly dominant TKO win in March over Justin Deloach. Um, he's the oldest of eight children. Marshall is good friends with the aforementioned Michael Fox and has sparred him and says he has told Fox that, quote, he'll get the give back in this fight, which is not a phrase I've heard before, but I understand what it means. <laughs> right. Um, as well as Russell, he's sparred with the likes of J-Rock Williams and Jarrett Hurd, and he's trained by Andrew Council, who listeners of a certain age will recall is a pretty solid middleweight contender uh, in the 90s and, may, and or maybe bled over into the early 2000s. Um, look, I like the young kid here. I see him working behind what's a very good jab to do enough in each round, but Given Maestri's priors, I'll wager there's a scorecard in the Venezuelan's favor, <laughs> deserved or otherwise. I'm going to go ahead and pick Marshall by split decision here. Okay. Uh, th- this is certainly the hardest fight on this card yeah. to pick. Because, um, yeah, Maestri has been fairly unimpressive as a pro, but he does have all this amateur experience. And, you know, Michael Fox is a tough style, especially as a late notice replacement for a guy who whose style is nothing like his. Uh, Shellistuk, who he drew against, is undefeated, a solid fighter. So it's possible Marshall represents a step down for Maestre, and he'll do better than in those other fights. And, you know, Marshall is mostly untested, though, as you said, he did look great last time out against Deloach. This is certainly a step up for Marshall. The fight, it's really kind of too unknown quantities going at it here. Uh, Marshall is more unknown. Uh, Maestre, I guess he's a known quantity, but there are just lots of questions surrounding whether his best days are all behind him in the amateur ranks. Um, I was very tempted to pick Marshall, as you did. It's the fun pick, right? You know, the the undefeated kid, seven KOs in eight wins, 22 years old. It's more exciting exciting for the sport if he wins rather than a 37-year-old guy who should definitely have at least one loss on his record. Um, But I'm going to trust the head instead of the heart. I I think maybe experience prevails here. Feels like maybe just a little too big a leap for Marshall. If he's better than I'm giving him credit for, or if Maestre is more washed than I'm recognizing, I could be getting this very wrong. But I'm thinking Maestre has the skill and experience to pull this one out and frustrate Marshall in spots. And so I'm going to go with Maestre also over the 10 round distance, also by split decision. I think it's going to be one of those fights where the scores are kind of all over the place, but two of the judges will favor the guy I'm picking. All right. Um, We thought we'd have two other significant fights to preview this weekend, but 
As we'll discuss momentarily in the news segment, one of them is off, leaving only the ESPN televised bout Saturday from Glendale, Arizona, between Oscar Valdez and Emmanuel Navarrete for Navarrete's 130-pound belt. This is Valdez's second fight since his lopsided loss to Shakur Stevenson. And in Navarrete's last bout, he got off the canvas and rallied to stop Liam Wilson in a much tougher fight than most expected. Eric, you have been soups excited about this matchup since before it was signed. It looks pretty much a 50-50 fight on paper, but as Terence Crawford reminded us, sometimes a 50-50 fight turns into a blowout. So how confident are you this, that this one will be a great, closely contested fight? And any lean on who will win? Um, I am confident still that the style matchup can't miss. Like, can not miss. Uh, the, these guys will be throwing punches, landing punches. It'll be exciting. Could it be a one-sided action fight, though? Um, yeah, I guess it's possible. I, I wouldn't say it's likely, but it's possible. I think Valdez has a higher level of skill than Navarrete. I think he's more versatile. He can box, he can counterpunch, or he can get aggressive and go bombs away. And combine that with how Navarrete looked in the Liam Wilson fight. Maybe he's a guy whose style has him flaming out young. He's only 28, but it's possible that Navarrete is starting to decline and also that he doesn't carry 130 pounds so well after having great success at 22 and 26. So with all that considered, yeah, I guess I can see a one-sided fight without the drama that we're hoping for. I mean, that's basically what happened in Valdez's fight against Miguel Burchell. Um, So... You know, it's certainly possible he does the same to Navarrete. I guess there's also a possibility, a lesser possibility, I'd say, but a possibility that Navarrete just overwhelms him with volume and then Valdez never gets much of anything going. But I do think the most likely scenario is a really outstanding, evenly contested fight. I think these guys are probably made for each other. And, you know, I I spent a little while asking for this fight, and uh, I (laughs) think it's going to deliver on its promise. But as you can probably tell, if I have to pick a winner, I lean Valdez. Um, maybe I'm letting that Liam Wilson struggle sway me too much, but but my money's on Valdez. Maybe by close decision, maybe by late stoppage. I don't really have to make an exact pick. Um, but, you know, Valdez is the small favorite at the sports books, and, and, and that looks correct to me. How about you? You got a quick unofficial pick you'd like to make on this? Just to echo, first of all, that I do think the styles are going to mesh kind of nicely. I have a hard time seeing one guy dominate the other one here. Uh, I think probably both guys are a little bit past their peak. Um, I keep thinking also of Valdez struggling with Robson Conceição right. uh, a couple of fights ago as well. Um, but I do think that they're tailor-made to bring the best out of each other. And honestly... I've been a little bit of a Navarrete stan ever since he started doing that run of four title defenses a year for for a couple of years. Right. Um, and I, I want to stick with him just for doing that. And I actually think I probably will just unofficially lean towards him. I think his volume might just be enough to carry enough close rounds and get him a perhaps controversial nod over the distance. We have a highly unofficial disagreement on this one. So what do you say if we end up tied in our picks competition at the end of the year, who wins oh, Valdez okay. Navarrete as the tiebreaker? What do you think of that idea? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. I, uh, I fully endorse that. All right. Um, we have us a packed news segment this week as we're carrying over a few noteworthy items we didn't get to last week. Plus, there's 
just been a lot breaking in the last seven days. Um, and our main event is something we've alluded to a couple times on the podcast already. Saturday morning, I woke up to the news that Dillian White did not pass his VADA test, uh, or as it was euphemistically phrased, he had returned adverse analytical findings as part of a random anti-doping protocol. His fight against Anthony Joshua, scheduled for this coming Saturday, is off. And as we record this, word is Matchroom is aiming to keep AJ in action against a new opponent Saturday, with the likes of Philip Hergovich, Derek Tesora, and Gerald Washington all on the undercard. It seems possible one of them will move up to the main event, and it's possible that you listeners will know the plan by the time you hear this, but uh, at time of re- recording, we do not. Uh, Kieran, your reaction to White facing PED issues for the third time in his career, and at the risk of it being dated by the time people hear this, your thoughts on the options for AJ? This whole situation with PED use and testing in the UK, it just it just feels almost out of control here. Something's mm-hmm. just not right with what's going on over there, uh, including in the way it's dealt with. The whole Tyson Fury saga was never fully explained or right. really even partly explained. We'll talk about Connor Ben shortly. As you mentioned, White's a serial offender now. He had a two-year ban and then for reasons that are unclear to anybody was sort of let off the hook. Um, but talking of that second time, I can't help but note that when White had an anomalous test result before facing Oscar Rivas, not only did nothing happen, Rivas wasn't even told. And right. now when he's facing Matchroom's star player, the beloved AJ, the fight's off. And I'm sure that's a coincidence and that there are no double standards at work here at all. Um, my immediate reaction is that White needs to be looking at a lengthy suspension, but he was, for reasons that remain opaque because of the way it's dealt with, not sanctioned for his second test and uh, a negative test. And, you know, he argues his innocence again, and it's the UK. So I don't know if we'll ever even find out what it was he popped for. Um, as for possible replacements, well, let's not forget what happened last time. AJ fought a replacement opponent after his original one dropped out because of a failed PED oh, test. Oh, right. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so he needs to think and pick very, very carefully. This is not his fault. And he has no obligation to bail out anyone. Um, this was meant to be part two of a confidence rebuilding stretch with a new trainer before one more shot at the brass ring. And he cannot afford to get this wrong and he cannot afford to allow himself to be bullied or persuaded into a replacement opponent who isn't the right one for him. Of the names that you've mentioned, the only one where I'm in charge of AJ that I'd feel okay with on such short notice is probably Gerald Washington. Yeah. But He's totally within his rights to say, screw it, and stay in camp and find a different opponent. Um, He strikes me as probably, especially when it comes to Eddie Hearn, more of a team player. And so I don't know if if he'll do that. Uh, And maybe he'll feel the pressure of the fact that the card is based around him. But he shouldn't. This is his, this next run is his last one. And he needs to get it right. And he needs to be very selfish. So we'll see. Like you said, this whole discussion might be out of date by the time the podcast posts. But this Anthony Joshua needs to only think about what's good for for him when making whatever decision he wants to make here yeah i agree with that assessment and certainly of those names of guys on the undercard i would be particularly surprised if they moved uh Hergovich up to the main event he's absolutely much too dangerous for short notice um i mean as a fan that would be a tremendous late switch but business wise and aj wise that one would shock me chisora i could see washington i could see 
But uh, yeah, they they need to be smart about this. Absolutely. Um, the co-main event in our new segment this week is an A-level fight coming together. Lightweight champ Devin Haney is moving up to 140 pounds and will face Regis Prograde. Um, according to Dan Raphael, uh, excuse me, I can't believe I missed that. <laughs> I was going to say, according, how could you how could you not take an opportunity? Go ahead, take it, take it now. Special, yes. According to our special podcast guest, Dan Raphael of ESPN. Thank you. The target date is October 28th in Las Vegas and on DAZN. Uh, meanwhile, good news for Haney. The gun possession charge against him that we discussed a couple weeks ago has been dropped, so he can focus on preparing for this fight. Uh, Eric, what do you think of Haney Progray? And do you share the popular opinion on the boxing internet that by fighting Progray, it means Haney is ducking Shakur Stevenson? Yes, well, of course. I mean, Devin Haney is ducking every <laughs> single fighter on the planet other than Regis Progray, right? That's how this works. Um, in all seriousness, I do believe the risk-reward calculation of fighting Shakur right now didn't make a whole lot of sense for Haney, but yeah. I can still see that happening somewhere down the line. Um, I also think it's become a real struggle for him to make 135. He stayed there about as long as he could. Why torture himself for a really yeah. tough fight against Shakur Stevenson if that fight isn't going to earn him like $20 million or something, you know? Um, in a vacuum, Progray is a great fight and a great challenge for Haney and and pretty damn close to a 50-50 fight, if you ask me. Progray looked flat last time out, but the opponent didn't want to engage. I, I wouldn't read too much into that, just as I'm not going to lower my opinion of Devin Haney because he needed a little help from the judges to beat Vasily Lomachenko. It's Vasily Lomachenko. Um, mm. At their best, these are two pound-for-pound pound fringe kind of fighters. Um, the the progray who beat the piss out of Chon Zapeda is a seriously top-tier fighter. And Haney, I'm, I'm not sure he quite has a signature win yet, but he does have a long streak going of one quality win after another. So I, I, I love this fight. I, I don't care that it isn't Haney-Stevenson. If Haney keeps winning, Haney-Stevenson is just that much bigger down the road. They're both young. There's time. Yeah. Uh, so Haney Progray is the big fight that's been signed, and Joshua White is the big one that's off. Several other fights either announced or postponed this week. Uh, Lee Wood will face Josh Warrington October 7th with the rescheduled Terry Harper, Cecilia Brakus bout on that same DAZN card from Sheffield. Uh, Chantel Cameron and Katie Taylor will rematch November 25th in Dublin. And Arthur Betterbiev's light heavyweight defense against Callum Smith is postponed after Betterbiev required surgery to address a bone infection in his jaw following <sighs> dental work. Um, I'm picturing his dentist as Steve Martin in Little Shop of Horrors, uh, reference for some of our older listeners, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Kieran, quick thoughts on uh, any of these fights? Um, I like Wood Warrington, although I do favor Wood in that one. Um, and, and adding Harper Breakers makes that a good card. Um, mm. Full credit to Cameron for rematching Katie Taylor in Dublin. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see how Taylor responds to suffering a loss, which is something she hasn't had to do for many years now. Um it's a shame about better BF Smith being postponed, but having surgery to address a bone infection sounds freaking horrific. I I might prefer to go 12 rounds with Callum Smith. Well, I guess in my case, it would be 12 seconds with Callum right, Smith right. Than, than go through that. Um, yeah. Yikes. Um, and uh, we have one more batch of news items uh, 
several odds and ends that we kind of crammed into this. Um, Jamel Herring is unretiring. That, how long did that last? Six months, eight months? Mm, I'm in that range, too, yeah. Yeah. And he'll be trained by our friend Wayne McCulloch. Um, Francis Ngannou also lined up a big-name trainer for his exhibition fight against Tyson Fury. Um, the man Fury was named after, Mike Tyson. Uh, Connor Ben has been cleared to fight by UCAD. Although, once again, we have, as far as I'm aware, very little information. I believe that UCAD has said that Ben is no longer suspended, but has not, to my knowledge, explained why or what has happened or how they came to whatever conclusion they came to. Um, Felix Verdejo has been found guilty of two charges in the horrific killing of uh, Kiosha Rodriguez-Ortiz, who is pregnant with his child. He faces a mandatory life sentence for each conviction. He apparently cried after the verdict showing more compassion for himself, apparently, than he ever did for Rodriguez-Ortiz. Mm. Um, and lastly, the aforementioned Dan Raphael uh, reported on the Spence Crawford pay-per-view numbers. None of this has been confirmed officially, but Dan's sources are usually pretty reliable. He says the fight did at least 650,000 buys in the US, possibly 675,000, which along with a near $20 million gate means there's plenty of money to go around to cover each fighter's reported 25 million or so guarantee. And I think that means we're probably going to get our per diems covered. Um, <laughs> Eric, your thoughts on any of these bits of news? I'll start with that last one, the pay-per-view numbers, which uh, Dan painted as very much a successful number that everyone should be pleased with. And, and I agree, you know, as long as we can resist the urge to compare this to Davis Garcia, which exceeded expectations like no pay-per-view since... Maybe Mayweather McGregor or mm. maybe Tyson Jones actually was the last one to to mm. uh, score as highly relative to expectation on pay-per-view as Davis Garcia. But anyway, point being, Spence Crawford was never going to draw that kind of audience, even if it's a higher level boxing match. Um, but if Davis Garcia hadn't come first, 650 to 675 for Spence Crawford would have been viewed as a tremendous success. Yeah. Um and my big takeaway is this one. If these guys did indeed make at least $25 million a piece and it was a success all around and everyone involved made money, that's great for the sport because it should encourage other top boxers to make the fights people want to see. You yeah. know, when the time is right, certainly. There's always something to be said for a little marination. But if Spence and Crawford had, you know, after all this time, finally agreed to fight each other, and it was a box office bomb, and, and they made less money than they'd hoped to, maybe it's harder to convince, let's say, Benavides and Morel that, that they should fight each mm -hmm. other. But we keep seeing evidence that when the best fight the best, the fans respond, and the fighters get paid. And that's a good self-perpetuating cycle to be in. Um, I know there are fans out there who don't care about TV ratings and pay-per-view buys and ask, you know, how does it affect my life? The truth is, it does affect you in terms of you know you support good fights uh and i i know the sport is expensive uh, we have to pick and choose sometimes but you support good fights and it does help make the next good fight um i don't have as, as much to say about any of these other items uh verdejo the whole thing is so disturbing i have nothing new yes. to say there connor ben the whole situation has been gross from the start um I'm rooting for the Herring-McCulloch pairing to work. Yeah. Although, you know, nine times out of ten, we prefer to see retired fighters stay retired. But I can't blame Jamel for wanting to give it one more shot. Um, and Fury and Gano, you know, Mike Tyson's involvement doesn't get me any more interested. Mike is not an experienced trainer. I'm not sure how much he helps Ngano. But 
as a mainstream marketing move, yeah. it's pretty smart. Right. You know, the, the target audience for Fury and Gano is sports fans who can name about 10 living boxers. And <laughs> Mike Tyson is the goat to that group of fans. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, we'll finish the pod this week with a top five countdown, even though no top five countdown was assigned last week. Uh, after Terrence Crawford's win over Errol Spence, and after our conversation in the moment last week, comparing it to Bernard Hopkins's win over Felix Trinidad, we figured this is great top five material, and we ought to strike while it feels timely. So Kieran and I have each prepared a top five list of the greatest dominant performances against elite opposition. So it's a bit of a balance between just how elite the opposition was and just how spectacular the performance was, which could lead to some variation in our lists, or maybe not. Maybe we'll have the exact same top five. Um, We've never tried a double countdown before, so I think the best approach is uh, for you to reveal your number five, then I'll comment and and note if I have it on my list and where, and then I'll do my number five and we'll we'll just go back and forth. So uh, that sounds good. All right, then, Kieran, uh, start it off with your number five. All right. My number five, January 20th, 2001, Floyd Mayweather, TKO 10, Diego Corrales. Um, Corrales was actually favored by plenty of folks to win this battle of unbeaten 130 pounders, but Good Lord, this wasn't even close to being close. Uh, Mayweather absolutely dominated with his speed and boxing IQ. Dropped Corrales no fewer than five times before Corrales' stepfather and trainer Ray Woods stopped the contest. I think it's a measure of how great this performance was by Mayweather that even now, after he had another 16 or so years at the very top of the profession, this is still widely regarded as Mayweather's finest outing. All right, we don't have identical lists. That's the good news. The other piece of good news is this is a perfect setup for my number five because I was torn between two options for number five. Felt like okay. it was a total coin toss, and this was the one that I didn't choose. So this is basically okay. my number six, Mayweather Corrales. Okay. Uh, but I flipped the coin and landed on Roy Jones's performance in 1994 against James Tony. Um, my number six. Okay. All right. All right. So we both, we just went different directions on which one to rank ahead, but we had the same two in those spots. Um, So, you know, Jones and Tony, they were both top three generally on pound for pound lists coming in, along with Pernell Whitaker being the third there. Um, Tony was the more proven of the two. It was fairly Crawford Spence-like in terms of close odds and in terms of dividing the public. And Roy just completely dominated him. The judges gave Tony one, two, and three rounds, respectively. Uh, Roy dropped him in the third. And this was an undefeated Tony. Uh, Now, he had had two draws, and he had had one decision win that pretty much everyone viewed as a gift. But he was fresh off stopping Prince Charles Williams. He was very active. The asterisk now applied that he killed himself making 168. Maybe so, but A, that's not Roy's fault, and B, he looked just fine at the weight four months earlier. Um, And this was just a masterpiece from Roy Jones as he entered his pound-for-pound prime. So I have this one at number five, but yeah, it's... uh, Catch me in a different mood, and I would have put Mayweather Corrales <laughs> ahead of this one. All right. We're going to snake this, or shall I just keep leading off with the, uh, shall I do my number four, and you respond? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do your number four? We don't have to snake it. Okay. All right. So I'm going back in time for this one. July 4th, 1919. Wow. Jack Dempsey, KO3, Jess Willard. Um, Willard was the defending heavyweight champion. He was far bigger than Dempsey. He'd recently killed a man in the ring, 
He was massively favoured, but 30 seconds into the opening round, Dempsey floored him with a left hook that broke his jaw. Six more knockdowns followed before the first round had ended. Dempsey's blows knocked out Willard's teeth, broke his face in multiple places. Willard retired on his stool after the third round, and we had a new and great heavyweight champion of the world. That's a good one. I will admit I did not go that far back with anything, with even with my thinking. Um, so, so it didn't. I didn't really give that one a serious thought. But as you describe it, it certainly belongs uh, on, on this list. I guess in my mind, I just sort of assumed that because Jack Dempsey is, is an all-time great and Jess Willard is a bit of a flash in the pan, I just sort of assumed that Jack Dempsey was supposed to beat him up the the way that he did but i guess that's that's not the case uh if that's uh what the history books uh, i was say. there i was there dude <laughs> you're, you're you're almost could convince some of our listeners that that's true perhaps yep. uh, Bert sugar and i both of us we were there. <laughs> right uh if that's true then you haven't aged like milk at all you've aged damn well for a guy who was at that fight um but yeah good good pick that didn't crack my top five but uh i think you make a pretty good case for including it um so my number four was a tiny bit more competitive than the other fights that made my list but it was still dominant enough and certainly the guy suffering the loss was elite on par with any other losing fighter on these lists of ours it's from August 1981, Salvador Sanchez, KO8, Wilfredo Gomez. Oh, um, excellent. The, uh, the tiny little asterisk here is that Gomez was moving up a weight class, and, and that's true, that's fair. It was still believed to be a 50-50 fight. Gomez was undefeated with 13 successful defenses at 122 pounds. He'd knocked out Carlos Zarate in a previous future Hall of Famer super fight like this one. And Sanchez knocked him down in the first and the eighth and stopped him in the eighth. And he lost some rounds in between, but was generally in control. And it's a magnificent performance. And I thought about putting it even a spot higher than this, but I ended up at number four with this one. Oh, wow. So we both... um had slightly uh, unexpected picks for number four. I didn't okay. even think about that one. Uh, and that's an excellent choice. Uh, I can tell you that that was the last kind of really original left field choice on my list. And okay. the other three are incredibly <laughs> conventional. Okay. But um, uh, my number three, June 27th, 1988, Mike Tyson, KO1, Michael Spinks. Um, Tyson had accumulated all the alphabet belts, I think, at this stage. But Spinks was the lineal champion. And there were quite a few folks who thought that maybe he had he had a genuine chance there of upending that that Tyson juggernaut that we would see what happened when Tyson finally went up against the real heavyweight champion. Yeah, but as we know, uh, one knockdown, two knockdowns, ninety-one seconds is all it took, and all she wrote. So this is interesting in that uh, that's not on my list, but it's mentioned in my notes for my number three. Uh, they, there's ah. there's a similarity here, and I went with a different heavyweight blowout. Um, okay. So I'll just tell you my number three, and I'll kind of work Tyson Spinks' mention into it, and I think it mostly just comes down a little bit to how we were framing this in our minds, perhaps. Um, yes. My number three is, is an outlier on my list uh, in that usually a quick KO lacks the completeness to get consideration for what I'm thinking of this as mm -hmm. um, there's the, this, you know, similar, but sort of separate list that would include fights like Tyson Spinks and Lewis Schmeling too, and so forth, just like big fights like this that were total dominations. Um, but I thought of this a little bit differently, wanting to see 
a little more of a complete masterpiece type performance from the winner in order to crack gotcha. my list. And Tyson Spinks gotcha. was just over too quick. But that said, the fight that I'm about to name here didn't last too much longer than Tyson Spinks. And I think it was a recent answer on, on the fight game. Uh, it's uh, George Foreman KO2 Joe yep. Frazier. Um, they don't come much more dominant than this against fighters as great as Joe freaking Frazier. Um, yep. And it was a significant upset at the time. Foreman showed about as complete a performance as you could show in less than two rounds. And uh, Joe Frazier, he may be the answer to the trivia question of who's the best fighter who's ever gotten stopped inside two rounds in his prime. Mm. Um, I can't think of anyone, uh, uh, you know, I think he's better than Spinks probably. And Duran against Hearns was not in his prime. So I, I think he may oh. be the answer to that trivia question. Uh, but so anyway, I got to acknowledge George Foreman for this win. And so I put him on my list. Yep. It was absolutely at the very top of my honorable mentions. Probably if I, if I ranked all of them, this would be number seven. Okay. And it was one in which along with Roy and James Tony that I looked at my list and I was like, this feels wrong, not including this on here. <laughs> um, and I and I share that thought. I actually Eve, that you were talking about how you were very much preferring leaning toward dissections rather than destructions, if you will. Right. Yes. And, that's a good way to describe. Um, and, and yeah, I had a similar thought, a, a little bit about should this be on here. And the only reason that I definitely kept it on there was, you know, you think the Sphinx was. The fighter of the '90s, I believe, or, or the, you know, the 80s, had that. Uh, the '80s had saying, that yeah. distinction, and well, it's like you were talking about early on the the balance between the eliteness of the opponent and of the performance. And I just thought that, given how good Spinks was, and this is such a famous and historic case of of, of domination that that I put it in there. But I but I get your point. And my two and my one. Here, I'll I'll interrupt just before you get that because I'm worried we may get yeah. some hate mail for you saying that Spinks was the fighter of the 80s. I want to note that it was uh, that was Ringside Seat Magazine that said that and it was very controversial ah! be- because most people uh, say Sugar Ray Leonard was the fighter yes. of the 80s. So just before you send us hate mail, know, know that we acknowledge that uh, that it's generally Ray Leonard recognized, uh, but that there is a, also a case for Spinks and uh, and and a good case for you including Tyson Spinks on your list. And so that out However, of the way, if you do want to yes. send hate mail, Eric is associated with <laughs> Ringside Seat Magazine. That's so that, true. And probably and probably, let's be honest, was probably behind this. Michael Spinks. <laughs> All uh, right. Well, uh, no, he was pulling the strings, manipulating <laughs> poor Bill Detloff. Not true. Not true. But as long as we're on the topic of of who to send hate mail to, if you're upset that there's no fight game this episode <laughs> i was willing to do a fight game and kieran wanted to skip it so, so hate mail goes his here way. it comes here it comes all all the friendliness of the episode <laughs> so far all the resentment comes spilling out toward the end here <laughs> um okay well my number two and my number one list are very much the uh, epitomes of the uh, dismantling over the course of a longer distance they're both fights that we've talked about they're both honestly responsible for us coming up with this list yes. number two okay good we're back on we're back on territory we're familiar with by the sounds of it we, we are but I, but i'm not sure if we'll have them in the same order, the order so i'm curious okay yes. number two you'll know with the first word september <laughs> yes okay. 29th 2001 bernard hopkins tko 12 felix trinidad the the fight and the comparison that, that started this whole thing a masterful performance. I mean, a study in how to absolutely dismantle an elite opponent. Hopkins figured out 
Trinidad's weaknesses and exploited them just ruthlessly and relentlessly. The, the story is that Trinidad was such a big favorite to win this Don King created Sugar Ray Robinson trophy um, for crowning the undisputed middleweight champion that reportedly his name was already on it, which is why Hopkins wasn't presented with it in the immediate aftermath. That's how much of a upset it was. Huge upset, dominant, dominant performance. Okay, so uh, yeah, so I, I so I know what your number one is, and your number one is my number two. We have us a good okay. old fashioned debate here. So um, okay. I'll I'll discuss my number two, and I I really just put all my notes on these fights together because I feel like okay. I kind of need to compare and contrast them to just explain why yeah. I landed on. Crawford Spence as my number two. Uh, I, I watched the replay on Saturday night. I wanted to watch it before making my decision. Okay. And and I ended up landing Terrence Crawford's performance at number two. It was without a doubt the more dominant of the two wins compared mm-hmm. to what Hopkins did to Trinidad. But I think it was a tiny, tiny bit less impressive because of how highly regarded Tito Trinidad was at the time. Um, and and it's easy to sort of look back now and, and mention, as you mentioned last week, the, the angle of Oscar had exposed him. And also to note that Trinidad went just two and two uh, after this. Um, but... I feel like you have to remember where Tito was at this moment in 2001. Yeah. Those back-to-back knockout wins over Fernando Vargas and William Joppe were so sensational that, that lots of people were talking very seriously about when he beats Bernard Hopkins, not if, but when, mm. then next up has to be a fight at light heavyweight against Roy Jones. Um, it seems crazy now and seemed maybe a little crazy even at the time, but it was legitimately being discussed Basically, Tito, in this moment, Tito was a god, and, and B-Hop picked yep. him apart. Um, if we're using the term masterpiece to ever describe a boxing match, that to me is the perfect embodiment of that term. Um, ever so slightly more so, I think, than Crawford against Spence. Spence, damn good fighter, probably still headed to the Hall of Fame, although you'll recall when you gave me the top five Hall of Fame locks assignment, I did leave him off and say that he's not quite a total lock, and I and I stand by that. Um, basically, I did not think coming into July 29th, 2023, that Errol Spence was as great a fighter as I thought Tito Trinidad was coming into gotcha. September 29th, 2001. This is subject to change, perhaps, depending on how Spence bounces back. Um, but for now, I can't quite put Crawford above Hopkins, but go ahead and, and make your case for putting Crawford at number one. Yeah, um, I totally see that I could probably change my mind tomorrow and then change it back again the day after. <laughs> right. I, I, I think these are two just excellent exemplars of of this this subject that we're talking about, of, of one elite fighter um, just taking apart another one. Why I eventually ended up just sneaking it at number one was when I think about the extent to which yeah, Hopkins and Trinidad was a fight that made sense because it came together with this tournament um, and was largely on the back of, you know, Tito deciding that he wanted to move up to 160 and all of that. This Spence and Crawford was a matchup that we collectively, boxers, fans, media, been clamoring for for Mm -hmm. years. Um, And we've been clamoring for it because of its perceived evenness. Um, it was like the Mayweather Pacquiao of a new generation, and and like right. that, long 
like that one, it proved to be one-sided, but unlike that one, it was entertaining and enthralling and exciting, even if it was uncompetitive. This was such a distraction that not only was Crawford almost universally acclaimed pound for pound number one afterwards, but immediately there were, what the hell was wrong with Errol Spence? There must be something wrong with Errol Spence. Mm. Could he not make 147? Was he already damaged? Did the car crash damage him? You, you almost had to start reaching for explanations to make sense of it all. It was, it was such a domination of a guy who is considered to be uh, a really, really solid fighter. It wasn't just a triumph of great skill and ability. It was a masterful job of preparation, just like Hopkins mm -hmm. was over Trinidad um, from the sharp counter jab onward. I think these two, whether you rank one, one or two, and I think uh, I think what you said about how we reassess our Spence over the coming years, I think is going to have a lot to do with how these two right. would ultimately be be listed if we did this list again in like five years or, or so on and so forth. But they're very much peas in the pod in the sense of just the way the winner not only used their superior skills and ability but also completely out thought as well as out for the opponent um maybe this is recency bias maybe it's affected by the fact that i was ringside for this one um but right now i just feel that and i also push against my natural inclination to diminish something because it's recent and it's in my mind right, recently right. you know what i mean and so i'm pushing against that a little bit but that's why i think the fact that for me it was the fact that this was a matchup that we all were so excited about for so many years and even those of us who picked crawford still thought it was going to be an exciting fight and it was such a, a dominant performance that's why for now combined with probably some recency bias um i'm going to put that just ahead of hopkins trinidad as my number one yeah, and, and I think another thing that maybe links these two performances for however long people remember the two of them for decades to come is the shared calm and focus of Hopkins and Crawford, that there was something yes. so clinical, confident, and focused about the way each of them took his opponent apart. Um, of all the sort of points that you made there in favor of the Crawford win over Spence being number one. I think the most compelling may have been the fact that so many people came out of it asking, geez, what the heck's wrong with Errol Spence? There yeah. must have been some reason other than Terrence Crawford's awesomeness that this was so one-sided. Um, and I don't know that there is another reason beyond the, just that the Bud was, was no. that gr is that great and was that great uh, on the night. But that's, that's a great case. Um, as I continue to uh, waffle on this and may have a different answer either after Spence comes back from this or tomorrow when I wake up on the other side of the bed or something. <laughs> so, But for now, we have the narrowest of disagreements at one and two, just as we did at, at five and six. Um, was there anything else on your honorable mention list that, uh, that we haven't brought up? Um, I had Max Schmeling KO12 Joe Lewis, although we didn't know whether Joe Lewis was elite at the time. There was an assumption right. that he probably was going to be. Mm -hmm. And Schmeling just took him apart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think Lewis, I think that fight is a really good sort of example of how you can be a really good young fighter and still come up against somebody who's seen something in you and he beats the shit out of you. And you can still come back and have an all-time great career. Yeah. Um, you know what? It may turn out. We'll see what happens with Stephen Fulton. No, anyway, KO8. Right. Stephen Fulton might be one of them. 
could right? be. Let's yeah. not forget what he did just four days beforehand. Um, that was mostly it. I did put Miguel Cotto, KO10, Sergio Martinez, but a lot of that was due to Martinez's knee, yeah. as we know. Um, I think there were maybe some others, but those were the main ones that I put down. Anything else I'm missing? Yeah, I, I Martinez was a little too compromised, and I think we kind of knew it in the as soon as that fight started. So that one, and and in a similar category, Manny Pacquiao's win over Oscar, I didn't really seriously consider yeah. because it was just clear that that wasn't quite Oscar in the ring uh, once things got started, even though he was favored coming in. The two others that I jotted down as honorable mentions. Um, I put Joe Lace or Joe Calzaghe against Jeff Lacey, yep. but the question is, did he ruin Lacey or was Lacey always right. overrated? If he ruined Lacey, if Lacey was actually that good, then this deserves the honorable mention. But maybe it, maybe Lacey was never that good, yeah. so I'm not sure. Um, and then the one other one that I thought about, but it falls just a bit short: um, Julio Cesar Chavez against Edwin Rosario. Um, mm. Falls a little short just because as great and as dangerous as Rosario was before Chavez beat him up and dominated him and stopped him, he did have two losses already in the previous three years, so he's not quite on the level of some of these other guys who took a loss. So I I feel pretty confident that uh, in in my top six and there being a, a, a yeah. bit of a drop-off below whichever, you know, Jones, Tony, Mayweather, Corrales, whatever order you put them in, I, I felt there was a bit of a drop-off be, below that. Agreed. What do you think? The one that I almost put on the honorable mention list and didn't was Barrera Hamed. What did you think? What do you think about that one? Was like not not close right. to a top five, but right. but worthy yeah. of being on the honorable mention list. Yeah, I think I think if we were making a top ten, that would be one that you're debating whether it squeaks in there at the bottom. Hamed was great and became a was eventually a Hall of Famer, but he was more of a borderline Hall of Famer. Yeah. And we look back and, you know, question some of his accomplishments a little bit. And it was dominant by Barrera, but maybe slightly less dominant than some of these. Like yeah. Ahmed probably won a good three rounds Couple. or so in that yeah. fight. So, yeah, it feels like a certainly a, a fight worth consideration, but one that uh, you'd have to really reach to put it uh, in the top five. And dates. All right. Well, that's not too bad. We had two. We had only two of the same ones on the top five. We just had them in a different area, and we swapped yeah. our five and six. And yeah, we actually ended up with that was a raging argument. It, it was. We actually ended up with no fights in the exact same spot, but three of the same are yeah three of the same fights or four of the same fights in our top sixes. So it's kind of if we were scripting it out, I think that's the way you might script it to have some disagreement <laughs> without being wildly all over the place. There you go. All right, more and more uh, podcasting from Alaska garages. Then apparently, it's <laughs> yes, sound quality is better. The level of disagreement. You're not. Just you're right. not allowed to leave that garage until we have a bad episode. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, that'll be coming up. Um, that'll do it for this episode of Showtime boxing with raskin and Mulvaney. uh we will be back next monday i will actually not be in this garage um with our post-fight analyses of the rodriguez lopez card of valdez navarrete and maybe anthony joshua against someone uh, and until then thanks as always for listening be safe be kind and be well